So we are going to be looking this weekend at these night visions. There are a series of visions that the young prophet Zechariah received at the time of the returned exiles back to the land after the time of the captivity. And there were a series of visions that they received, that he received in that night, um, seven or eight, depending on how you want to count them. Uh, some brethren will say it's seven, some will say it's eight. I've put up the eight uh, vision version, and really the discrepancy comes in Zach Zechariah chapter five, and whether or not these are two separate visions, but closely related to each other, or whether they are one single vision. So that's where we get seven or eight visions from. Nevertheless, um, as I say, those two are very closely related. So Zechariah, in the course of one night, received all these visions. They are visions which were to give encouragement. They were to give um, exhortation, but they were to also provide a vision to the returned exiles at a time when they were facing adversity in the building of the temple. Now, you will notice as you look at the list of those night visions, um, you probably don't know yet, but when we go through them, we're going to find that they, there isn't really a necessarily an order in terms of like, they're, they're not in chronological order in terms of the way that they unfold. Um, and they aren't really in a thematic order per se, though I do believe there is a reason for the order that they're in, which we'll come to in a few minutes. But what, we will, what we're going to try and do is go through these visions as much as we can this weekend. I will say that time is limited. So there's one vision that we won't be able to cover, which is Zechariah 2, which is the vision of Jerusalem. And you might think that's kind of odd, being right in the middle, that we're not going to be able to cover that one. We will make reference to it. Um, but really, uh, for our purposes, what we're going to do is we're going to take more of a thematic approach. So we're going to take a few of the visions. So today in our classes, we're going to look at vision one, two, and then we're going to skip ahead and do five through eight. So we're going to do those visions in the three classes today. And then we're going to save for tomorrow vision four and five. So we're going to be, as I say, taking a thematic approach to it, and we're going to be looking more today at God's work among the nations and also with his people, Israel. And then tomorrow's classes will be more focused on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think what we're going to see, though, in all of these visions, we're going to be able to see ourselves in them. We're going to be involved in the, in the fulfillment of many of the things that are in these visions. So we're gonna, we'll be able to see that by the end of our class uh, later today. Now let's just establish some background to, um, to Zechariah's prophecy. If you hold your hand here in Zechariah and come back to Ezra chapter one. So Ezra is the time of the return of the exiles. And the book of Ezra opens up with a decree a decree that's recorded twice in scripture for us the decree of cyrus it's at the end of second chronicles just up the page and then it's in ezra chapter one and the returned captives or the captives in the land of babylon were waiting for the time of this decree to be made um 
they had Isaiah had prophesied years before about uh, a man named Cyrus that was going to come to the throne that would allow them to return to the land. And we can imagine the excitement that the people must have had when a man by the name of Cyrus did come to the throne at around the time when the 70 years was coming to an end and made this decree allowing the people to return back to the land of Israel. And we find from Ezra 2 and verse 64 that there were 42,360 people that made that journey back to the land of Israel. This would be a company made up of old people, young people. It would have been slow. It would have been arduous. It would have been um, perhaps dangerous at times, the road that they would take. They were following in the footsteps of their father, Abraham. It was really a journey of faith that they took to go back to the land. So that was 536 BC that that took place. And so in the, if we just come over to chapter three of Ezra, we will find that um, they came back. They were under, Zerubbabel was the leader at that time. Joshua was the high priest. And they got straight to work building an altar. And then they started the work of laying the foundation of the temple. And we come in at verse 11 of chapter 3, and we find that the temple foundation has been laid. They sang together by course. They praised God. They gave thanks unto God. And, and But there were also those that were weeping, and because they remembered the temple that had been of old, Solomon's temple, and they thought that this one wasn't up to the same standard as Solomon's uh, temple, just by looking at the foundation of it. Nevertheless, the people were united together in their in the work that they were doing at this time. But then we come to Ezra chapter 4, and we find in verse 1, it says, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto Yahweh God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do. We do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esar Hayden, king of Assur, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, You have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. Here was a group of people that were trying to uh, say that they had lots in common with the returned captives, when in fact Zerubbabel and Joshua knew that they didn't. And they had no part in this work. And as a result, they then, verse 4, the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them to the point that we come to verse 24 of Ezra 4. It says, then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And it ceased for a period of 15 years. For 15 years, the temple site lay dormant. There was a foundation laid with nothing built upon it. And we learn from the prophet Haggai, the people had returned to focus on their own houses and their own lives rather than focusing on the ecclesia and the things of God. And so it took God stirring up two men. 
It says in chapter 5, verse 1, Then the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then, as a result of their prophesying, then rose up Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Josadak and began to build the house of God which was at Jerusalem. So God raises up these two prophets to encourage them to get back to the work of building the temple. And that's what the people do. They get back to that work and they spend the next four years building the temple. But again, the adversaries rise up as we read in the rest of chapter five. And they begin to ask the question, who gave you the authority to be able to be building this temple? And we learn through the chapter that the response that they gave was, well, Cyrus Cyrus had made a decree years ago that the temple should be built. So the people in the land write a letter to to Darius, the king of Persia, to ask him, is this true? Because they didn't believe it. And while they're waiting for that response to come back, it seems that that's the time when Zechariah is going to receive those night visions. And that will be important, especially to one of the visions that we're going to see tomorrow. Now, just to focus in a little bit more on that second year of Darius, it was a very active year for the prophetical word. And you can find these dates in the reading of Haggai and in Zechariah. It was the sixth month, the first day of that month, that Haggai received the first message to get the people to come back to work. And he told the people, he exhorted them to consider your ways. And we learn that hardship was coming during that 15 years when they had laid dormant. Hardship had come to them because they weren't focusing on the things of the ecclesia. And then we find that by the 24th day of that month, so a few weeks later, the people heeded the words of Haggai and came back to do the work of the temple. Then about a month later, after they got back to that work in the seventh month, the 21st day, Haggai receives his second message. God tells the people through Haggai to be strong. God is with you. And God will allow this work to be completed. He will fill this house with his glory. So those that thought that, well, this temple isn't as great as Solomon's temple, God says, I will allow this work to continue and I will fill this house with my glory. In the eighth month, we're not told what day it was in the eighth month, Zechariah now receives his prophecy. And as we said, he was a much younger prophet and we'll prove that in a moment. And he said, be ye not as your fathers who didn't listen, who didn't hearken to God's word. And then in the ninth month, In the end of that month, the 24th day, Haggai again receives two prophecies that night, that day, and where God says to the people, I will bless you and I will destroy the strength of the heathen. So those nations and the people in the land around them that were trying to weaken their hands, God would destroy them. And then there was a space of two months where there was nothing, no prophetical word. And then in the 11th month, in the 24th day, That's when Zechariah receives these series of night visions. 
So now let's consider why these visions are in the order that they are. I'm going to give you a suggestion that uh, I've come up with for this, and you can give it a, th a think and, and think about this. And perhaps it will be more after we've actually gone through the various visions over the course of this weekend. I want to ask how many of you are familiar with the idea of a chiastic structure, a chiasm. So, okay, so so uh, some of you are. It's a it's a writing um, method that's found often in scripture, where what you have is you've got something either similar or something that's contrasted that's at the beginning and the end of a section of verses or chapters or however long it's going to be. And then as you move in on either side, so let's say it's a 10-verse section, it might be verse 1 and verse 10, are there's something similar, and then you move in. So verse 2 and verse 9, you might find that there's, again, something similar, and you move in again on either side until you get right down to the middle. And, and the whole point of a chiasm is that whatever's in the middle, that's the focus. That's the most important bit. And that's why, why things are put in that way, to be able to focus the attention into the middle. I'm going to suggest to you that the night visions of Zechariah, there is a chiasm there. And in order to do this, I, I suppose that, that I've been able to do this both with the eight vision version and the seven, but I th I'm going to stick with the eight for our purposes today because um, I think it works a, a little better. Um, the the you, We have to look at the first two visions, really, that Zechariah received and compare that with the last vision. Now, again, I know we're, we're looking at this before going through any of these, but what we're going to find is in the opening vision of Zechariah, we're going to find horses, horses that have just returned from a mission. The mission that they're returning from is actually a mission they're sent out on in the very last vision in chapter 8. So there's this link between the horses in the first and the last vision. And we'll also find that there are in the second vision of Zechariah, in Zechariah 1, verse 18 to 21, there are four carpenters. And we're going to see in our third class today how the four carpenters are very closely related and speaking about the same things as the four chariots in that final vision. So that's what links the beginning and the end of the night visions together. Then we move in on either side. And rather than a similarity, there's now a contrast. There's a contrast going to be placed because the focus of Zechariah 2 is on the city of Jerusalem and the future glory of that city in the kingdom age under the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to be put in contrast with Zechariah 5, the woman in the ephah, which we'll see relates to the city of Rome. So these two cities stand in contrast, the one to the other, Jerusalem and Rome. We then move in on either side again, and we find that in Zechariah 3, the focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's presented to us there as the high priest of the Melchizedek order. He is the king priest. And then that is in contrast with the sixth vision at the beginning of Zechariah 5 with the flying scroll, which we're going to see is the failure of the Mosaic priesthood. And so these two priesthood 
priesthoods are put in contrast the one with the other. And then that brings us right to the middle. And right in the middle is then the lampstand and the two olive trees. And we're going to find that that vision, which we're going to talk about in our, in our class tomorrow morning, is really the central focus. It's God's whole plan and purpose with us. It's about God manifest in a multitude of people that are shining forth his light and his glory in all the earth. So now with that as being our introduction, we're going to come back to Zechariah chapter 1. And we're going to just look at how the night visions are introduced to us. In Zechariah chapter 1, I want you to notice the similarity of words between verse 7 and verse 1 of the chapter. So in Zechariah 1, and, and if you want any of the slides afterwards, I can make them available because there are going to be some charts and things coming up uh, that you might want to uh, have uh, reference of, and we might have to move fairly quickly through them. You will notice that in Zechariah 1 verse 1, it says that this was the word of Yahweh unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying. And that phrase is repeated again in verse 7. Then came the word of Yahweh unto Zechariah, the prophet, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying. And we ask ourselves, why is this statement given twice? And we could just say, well, that's it's another vision for another time. I mean, so again, he's stating the credentials. It's a few months later, maybe. But as you go through the rest of the book of Zechariah, we don't find that his credentials repeated again. There seems to be some reason why Zechariah's credentials are given to us right again, just a few verses later, at the outset of these night visions. And I think it's because of what it tells us and what it relates to in verse 8. So we need to actually, first of all, look at what this, what this tells us about Zechariah. We already know he's a prophet. That's obvious from the book itself, that he's a prophet. But if you come back, hold your hand here, and I want you to come back to Nehemiah chapter 12. Now, Nehemiah chapter 12 is one of those chapters you come to in the daily readings in November, and it's one of several genealogies you will come to in that section. And sometimes we get there and we might groan a little that another genealogy of names to read. I'm going to give you something uh, from this that will make this chapter a little more exciting when you come to it. Because this is the chapter where we find out exactly who Zechariah the prophet was. He wasn't just a prophet. It says at the beginning of Zechariah chapter 12, Now these are the priests and the Levites that went up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua. And now it's going to begin to list them off. It's going to list for us all the priests that came up in those days of the the of of uh, the returned exiles, and notice in verse four it mentions Ido. Now you might say, I wonder if that's the same Ido 
that's mentioned in Zechariah chapter 1. Well, come down to verse 16, and it says of Ido, Zechariah. Zechariah was a descendant of Ido. So it seems to be this is the same individual. The timing's right. The two names in the genealogy are correct. And then we look at verse 10, where it tells us that Joshua, the high priest Joshua, begat Joachim. And then in verse 12, it tells us that in the days when Joachim was the high priest, so after the time of Zechariah's prophecy, or after the time at least of these night visions, it says in the days of Joachim were priests, the chief of the fathers. And in that list that's given to us in the verses that follow, it tells us in verse 16 that Zechariah was one of the priests who ministered in the days of Joachim, Joshua, the high priest's son. So Zechariah wasn't just a prophet. Zechariah was a priest. And Zechariah hadn't begun his priestly work yet because he was going to do that later on. Now, we know that the priests entered into the service at the age of 30. So that's the proof that why Zechariah then had not begun. Zechariah was probably, I'm going to speculate, probably around 20 years old when he received the night visions, which would work out to him being about five years old when they came back from the captivity. So he might have remembered his family packing up their things and the excitement and making that journey when he was a young child. It might have been one of his earliest memories that Zechariah had. Again, you can play around with it a little bit. We don't know exactly when when Joshua the high priest uh, finished his his work, um, but somewhere in that range, it probably would have been somewhere in Zechariah's twenties uh, that he received the night visions. So now, with that in mind, come back to Zechariah chapter one, because here's why this the credentials of Zechariah now are given to us in Zechariah 1, verse 7. Because when we come to verse 8 of Zechariah chapter 1, we are going to be introduced to a man riding on a horse. And we're going to find that this man riding on the horse is a commander of forces. He is a captain. He is a king. He represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately before being introduced to that man riding on the horse, we're being given Zechariah's credentials speaking about priesthood and a prophet. Because the man riding on the horse that's immediately going to be introduced to us isn't just a king. He's also a priest, and he's also that prophet that Moses spoke about. All three offices are brought together in verses 7 and 8 for us to consider. And it will become clear as we go through these visions that indeed the Lord Jesus Christ will be shown in chapters 3 and 4 that he is the king priest of the Melchizedek order. And perhaps another reason why the lineage or the credentials of Zechariah are given twice, and this is now the second time that they are given, 
is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was not going to be the priest of the old covenant, the first covenant, but he's going to be that of the second, the new covenant. So just some thoughts as to why the lineage is there twice. Now let's get into this first vision. It says, verse 8, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. That word in the bottom means in a ravine is the idea. And behind him, it says, there were red horses, speckled and white. So Zachariah is looking at this picture. He sees this man on the horse. He sees this company of horses of different colors behind him. And then said I, said verse 9, so Zechariah now asks and he turns, and there's an angel that's, that's, that's presiding over these, over these things that he's, he's looking at. And he turns to the angel beside him and says, Oh, my Lord, what are these? What am I looking at? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show you what these be. Verse 10 says, And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, So now the man on the horse in front of him, representing Christ, as we will see, now speaks to Zechariah. And he says, and you can picture him stretching out his arm to those horses in this company of horses behind him. And he says, these, these are they whom Yahweh has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And then that great company behind him on the horses, they answer and they speak now. And they say to the angel of Yahweh. So now there's another title being given to the man on the horse. He's now the angel of Yahweh that stood among the myrtle trees. And they said, we have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. In other words, all opposition to Christ's rule has been put down. The whole earth sitteth still and is at rest. This is the very end picture of all the visions of Zechariah. This one holds the last spot, chronologically speaking, if you were to work it out on a timeline, all opposition to Christ's rule has been put down. Now, look at the titles, as we said, of the man on the horse. He is the man that's riding the horse. He is, verse 10, the man that stood among the myrtle trees. He is, verse 11, the angel of Yahweh that stood. Do these titles apply to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, a man riding takes us to Psalm 45, the great marriage psalm. And it talks about the, 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 sorry, the bridegroom and how it says, in, mad, in thy majesty, ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Or we have Revelation 19, where the Lord Jesus Christ is depicted riding on a horse with the army of the saints following behind him. What about the title of the angel of Yahweh? Is this ever used of Christ? Well, the angel of Yahweh in Zechariah's day could be referring to Michael, the archangel, the head of the angels, which, of course, when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, 
He then became the head of the angelic host. Michael gave that office over to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Daniel 12, verse 1, is one of the passages that we go to talking about the resurrection. And there Christ is referred to as Michael. Michael shall stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And again in Malachi 3, verse 1, the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as the messenger, that's the word angel, the angel or the messenger of the covenant. So there are times when the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as the angel of Yahweh. He came to represent God. Now let's speak about the myrtle trees. Now, Brother John Carter has a book called Prophets After the Exile. And uh, it's an excellent book, um, particularly when dealing with um, these, the prophecy of Zechariah, not too difficult to read. And he talks in there about the myrtle trees and what they represent and how they represent and speak about not only the place of this vision, but the timing of this vision. He says, myrtles are indigenous to Palestine and therefore fix that land as the scene of the vision. The myrtle, an evergreen, is an everlasting sign of God's blessing of the cursed earth. So he says, first, the first thing that the myrtle speaks about is the place. We're talking about the land of Israel. And then he's, and, we're, and again, we're going to prove that by the time we get to the end of our class in, the, in, in class three today. And then he says, the myrtle was used in the Feast of Tabernacles by the returned exile. So years later, but around the same time period as, as this, we have Nehemiah 8 verse 15. They hold the Feast of Tabernacles and they have the used myrtle trees. And we know that that, and, and, well, Brother Carter says, since that feast foreshadowed the kingdom of God, its use in that connection affords another link in fixing the meaning of this vision. So the time period is in the time period of the future, in the kingdom age. The kingdom age is about to begin. So we have the end of the vision put first. Now, with all of these visions, there is both a future fulfillment, but there's also a present day fulfillment in the time of Zechariah. And if there was something that they could take away from this, um, it is that the the that you could look at these things in terms of the angelic host, the unseen angelic host that encamped around the captives at the time when they were building the the temple, where indeed the 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 man upon the horse, the angel of Yahweh, would be referring to Michael, who we know was active at this time from the book of Daniel, and the other angels that were there um, working uh, to prosper this work along. Would be, um, would be seen as those that were on the horses behind him. So there is a, there's a way that we could, we could see some kind of present-day application, and it's a lesson to us as well that the angels, of course, encamp around us and, and, and work to minister to our salvation. But the full fulfillment of these things seems to be in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we say, they come back and they report all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Well, then in verse 12, a question is asked. And the question is asked by the angel of Yahweh. Now, we just learned from 
uh, early, a couple of verses earlier that the angel of Yahweh was the man on the horse. So now this man on the horse, the commander, the leader, the captain, the Lord Jesus Christ, is asking the question, now that comes, how long? O Yahweh of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which thou hast had indignation these 70 years? Now we need to ask ourselves the question, why is the Lord Jesus Christ the one asking this question, how long? We'll come to that in a moment. We also want to notice here in verse 12, this phrase, Yahweh of hosts, one of the titles of God. This is now the sixth time that this title is used in this chapter. In chapter one of Zechariah, the title will be used nine times. And this is the sixth time. God is the God of an army, of a host. For the present day, in Zechariah's day, it was the angelic host. But in the future, it will be made up of Christ and the saints. Because the things that are now being spoken about are things that we are going to, by God's grace, be involved in the fulfillment of. So that's the significance of that phrase as we read through it. So now this question is asked, how long? Another way we could ask this question is, how long till the set time to favor Zion comes? And this has been the cry of the faithful in times of desperation down through the ages. Psalm 74, verse 10. Oh God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Revelation 6 and verse 10. This is the time period of Diocletian's persecution of the Christians. It was one of the most uh, deadly persecutions there was. A time of great desperation, and the faithful were crying out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Do we ask the question, How long? We may not today face physical persecution like those in the past, but the adversaries are all around. And sometimes the adversary is maybe a little bit more, I want to say subtle, in the sense that the adversary is not there perhaps as, as prominent as it was in Zechariah's day, trying to stop the work per se, but the world itself is moving further and further away from God's standards, isn't it? And it's not just in the school systems anymore and the education systems. You know, years ago, we used to talk about the, the challenge of young people going to university and some of the things that were being taught there. But now it's young children in school being taught these things. And now it's prominent in the workplace. Many brethren are faced with great challenges in the workplace today because of the things that the offices and the and the um and that the um the different uh human resources and and things want to try and promote um in the workplace and so there are adversaries around and many people are leaving the truth and the question then has to be asked how long 
How long until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? How long until the Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted as king in this earth? Or as it's put here, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? Well, there are echoes through this back to Daniel chapter 9. Now, Zechariah would be familiar with Daniel chapter 9 because Daniel was a prophet that was there in the exiles. And uh, in Daniel chapter 9, that's the chapter where Daniel offers his prayer to God. He, he speaks on the behalf of the exiles to confess their sin, to ask for forgiveness, and prays that they might be able to go back to the land. And I've put a chart there on the screen that you can see the many links between Zechariah chapter 1, some of which are actually before the night visions, they're in the first section, and then in Daniel chapter 9, the different words or phrases that come up. In Daniel 9, verse 1, I've put it on the screen there. It says, in the first year of the reign of, of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years, whereof the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And that links with the 70 years that Zechariah is recording there, this question that's being asked about the 70 years. Verse 18 of Daniel 9 O oh my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. So there's a reference to Jerusalem. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. So Daniel is appealing to God's mercy that they would be able to return to the land and that God would favor the land of Israel and Jerusalem particularly, again. And again, you can read through the whole section. I've just picked out a couple of verses to highlight the point. Now, why this is important to see this link is we can, by seeing this link, you can appreciate why it is that the man on the horse, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one asking the question in Zechariah 1, how long? Now, he doesn't need to answer that question, ask that question. Because he knows when he was ascended to heaven, he knew when he's going to return. But in Daniel chapter 9, what is Daniel doing? He is representing his people. He is speaking to God on the behalf of his people. And in Zechariah 1, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking on the behalf of all his brethren in times of trouble and desperation asking how long. Now, Daniel 9 is also interesting because at the end of that chapter was the 70-week prophecy. It wasn't going to answer how long it was going to be till Christ returns, but it was going to answer the question how long until the Lord Jesus Christ was to come onto, onto the scene. The question of how long until Christ returns was going to be answered more specifically, we could say, um, in the second vision that Zechariah was going to re receive that night. But what they would come to appreciate if they could remember Daniel's 70-week prophecy is they would also, the returned exiles would also appreciate that the temple that they were building was not 
the end of the story. This was not the house of prayer for all nations that Isaiah had prophesied about. They would come to realize that history was going to repeat itself. They would come to realize that Jerusalem would become a desolation again, and that um, and that they would have to be brought back to the land once again in the future. And so that was to help provide a context to the returned captives, to get their focus correct, that when they were discouraged by the fact that this temple wasn't as great as Solomon's temple, well, don't be discouraged by that, because this is a means to an end. And the means to the end was to get them prepared for that greater work in the future to come. Now, going back to Zechariah, chapter 1, verse 14, or actually, we'll read verse 13. It says, Yahweh answered the angel that talked with me with good, that word good means pleasant, with pleasant words and comfortable words. So he was being taught, told, now words of comfort was the answer to this question, how long? Verse 14, so the angel that communed with me said unto me, cry thou saying, thus saith Yahweh of hosts. There's the seventh time that phrase is used. And God says, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great jealousy. So God is now going to remind the captives that he is jealous. That word, it means zealous. God has a zeal or an envy for this city. He is not going to allow it to be a, a desolation forever. It will come to a time of prosperity as spoken of by the prophets. These things will be brought to pass. Now that word that's used there, God, that word jealousy is used of the man Phineas. And if you just come back to Numbers 25, I'm going to show you this because it, it plays into something we're going to see in, a, in a, just a minute as we come to these last few verses. Numbers 25, we'll remember how Phineas um, stood up and went into the tent with that man and woman and thrust them through with his sword. And God commends Phineas for this work that he did. And it says in verse, uh, reading verse 11, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore say, behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace and he shall have it and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Now that gives us a practical picture of somebody having a zeal for God's ways. And that's the kind of zeal that God has for the city of Jerusalem. Now just hold this in your thoughts until we come to the end here, because it's going to come up again, this idea that he's the that Phineas is given this promise of an everlasting priesthood. That's the Melchizedek priesthood it's referring to. God, in his zeal, in his jealousy, because he was jealous for Jerusalem and for his people, had removed Israel to Babylon. 
had caused them to return from Babylon, but would also judge the enemies of Israel. And so it goes on to say in verse 15, I am very <coughs> sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. This is now God's anger towards those adversaries that were rising up in Zechariah's day. And this is God's anger towards the nations in the way that they treat his city, Jerusalem. When it says he is very sore displeased, sore is the word wrath or anger. I don't have it on the screen, but the word displeased is the word roth, W-R-O-T-H. What this is saying is, I was very wrath, wrath with the heathen that are at ease. Or that is that those that are dwelling carelessly, proud, who are arrogant. And um, and so God was going, and, and in fact, actually, if you look back up into Zechariah 1 and into verse um, uh, verse 2, you'll find that God had been sore displeased with their fathers. And now um, and now he was going to be sore displeased with the nations. Now, our final slide for this um, talk it picks up on something from verse 16 that links back to Isaiah 54. So verse 16 says, Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith Yahweh of hosts. A line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. So here's the confidence. And, and so if the returned exiles had even comprehended or seen the link back to Daniel and thought, well, wait a second, there's going to be another time of desolation, another time of removing from the land. Is that the end of God's purpose? God makes it clear here, no, that will not be the end of his purpose. He will return to Jerusalem. He will build his house in it. So this, the work that they were involved in then would come to, would be completed, and the work in the future, the future house that will be built in that city, the house of prayer for all nations. And a line will be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Now, all the way through this section, there are echoes back to Isaiah 54. Time doesn't permit us to be able to look at all of them, but just come back to Isaiah 54, and I'll just show you. You can see on the screen how the idea of God's mercy, which has been appealed to here through these verses, is spoken about there in Isaiah 54, where God says, with great mercies, I will gather thee in verse 7. Verse 8, he says, I will have mercy on thee. Z Isaiah 54, verse 8, talks about God's wrath, which is the same word as the sore displeased from verse 15. The word roth, from the, this, the displeased, I'm sore displeased from Zechariah, that is there in verse 9. Um, and then in verse 10 of Isaiah 54, this is where I told you to hold in mind Phineas, because it says, verse 10, for the mountains shall depart, the hills shall be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed. 
saith Yahweh, that hath mercy on thee. The covenant of my peace. That was the covenant made to Phineas. So although there's kind of like this dual link where Isaiah 54 is linking back to Phineas and Zechariah 1 have linked back to Phineas with God, with the, the zealous being the, the jealousy that God has. And then um, we'll just jump down because the main thrust of this and, and why this is significant is because you come back to the beginning of the chapter and you get a sense now of what it means when Zechariah says a line will be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. What is the significance of that phrase? So Isaiah 54, it begins in verse 1 by singing, Sing, O barren. He's referring to Sarah. O sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith Yahweh. And then it says, verse 2, Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. That's the same word. Stretch forth a line in Zechariah 1.16. Stretch forth the curtains of thy habitation in verse 2 here. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, strengthen thy stakes. This is telling us Sarah's tent needs to be made bigger. There's more people that are coming into it. Verse 3, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. Why does it need to be made bigger? Because thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. So when Zacharias says, when it's told him that my house will be built in it and a line will be stretched forth upon Jerusalem, it has the idea of the Gentiles are being incorporated into these promises made to Abraham. As he was told, all families of the earth would be blessed in him. And so the grand purpose of God is being presented to us here. God's purpose with Jerusalem, the future glory of this city. And so it concludes in verse 17. Cry yet thus saith Yahweh of hosts, this is Zechariah 1. My cities through prosperity shall yet spread abroad. And Yahweh shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Let there be no doubt in your minds, people of Zechariah's day, that God is working for the good of this city. And there must be no doubt in our minds as well that God will bring these promises to pass. And so this is the opening vision of Zechariah that night, focusing our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing the earth to be at rest and Jerusalem's glory or God's glory to fill this city of Jerusalem.